Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. Well, again, um, a very good morning to anyone that has perhaps slipped in during the course of the worship. My name is Jason, for those of you who are perhaps listening online. And uh, we are week three in our series that we've entitled Origins. It's a part of the bigger series that we're doing, Foundations, looking at the Old Testament based on the highlights package of the Old Testament that we find in Hebrews chapter 11. So we're allowing Hebrews chapter 11, if you like, to guide us through the highlights and big moments of the Old Testament. Um, And we're going to be looking at Genesis in the run-up to Christmas. And so, again, if you've missed any of the messages, the last two messages, I'd really love to encourage you to go online. Uh, You can get that on our website. You can get it as a podcast on iTunes or on SoundCloud. SoundCloud, um, but have a listen because um, this is a bit like building a wall, and each brick uh, sort of sits on top of the one that's underneath it. And um, I think you're just going to benefit more if you if you're able to catch up. Then that would be great. Today we come, as we will have seen this morning from the kids' story, to Genesis chapter three, which in some sense is the most important chapter in the Bible at least as it relates to our understanding of the gospel, because without this, without chapter 3 and what happened there, there would actually be no need for the rest of the Bible, and we wouldn't have any idea of the whole understanding of the gospel. And so uh, you can't help, but as you are reading Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, to have this growing sense of tension as you read it. There is this perfect world that's being described where we're given this picture of nature, creation, humanity in perfect connection with God. And yet our experience of life is so mixed. Yes, there's love and there's compassion and there's grace and there's beauty. Isn't it amazing the world that we live in? And yet at the same time, there is war and there is sickness and there is brokenness and there is pain and suffering and death and loss. And you you begin to read through these chapters and this tension begins to rise. If what God made was good, why is there evil and suffering and pain in the world? How did this perfect creation get to where we are today, because we are very aware that the world we live in, as beautiful as it is, is deeply broken, and there is much suffering and pain. And this, if you like, this is the human question, and it's a question that Genesis chapter 3 goes a long way to answering. The challenge, though, is this phrase, I'm not sure how you've engaged with it or how you've perhaps verbalized it yourself. I know I've verbalized it, but before I was a Christian, I sort of verbalized it as an accusation against the goodness of God, more than a question of wanting to know what the answer was. You know, if if God is good, then how can there be so much pain in the world and broken? In other words, there can't be a good God, was what was in my heart as I was 
vocalizing that question as, as, a, as a younger adult. And I think what is challenging as we come to chapter 3 is we begin to recognize the answer to this question actually lies with humanity. And it lies with us, which is why it's difficult for us to sometimes engage with this passage of Scripture. So let me pray for us as we come to it, that the Holy Spirit might have freedom in our hearts, in our minds, in our spirits to speak God's words to us. Because I, I pray that my words make sense, particularly after the week that we've had. But I pray more than that, that you would hear the voice of your Heavenly Father as he speaks to you through his word, through his word, because he has a word for each of us this morning. And so, th Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. It's a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our feet. It shapes us and reshapes us. You say that as our minds are renewed, as we come into truth, that we find freedom and wholeness and life. And we're actually able to understand what God's will is for us and for others. And so, Lord, I pray for just a divine impartation of your spirit and truth in this time, that we might leave transformed because of what you have done with us in this moment, in this space. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to read some of this that was, a little of this was read to us earlier, but let's read it um, uh, afresh. Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to read from verse 1, if you're following uh, in, your, in your own Bibles. Uh, I'm reading from the NIV. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, or you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also looked desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What was meant to be such a beautiful and welcoming sound for them. And yet we see what happens. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and, and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, what, have, what is this that you have done? 
The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And just to pause for a moment, we will come back to this. But this is the first sign of redemption in the Bible. Though we see that through the woman's sin, the serpent is able to find a way to bring destruction to humanity, God's promise is that through the woman's offspring, a reference to Mary and to Jesus, God will bring salvation into the world. We'll come back to that in a moment. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. We see how sin now impacts two of the significant areas of the woman's divine purpose that we looked at over the last couple of weeks, to be with her husband and fill the earth, and to be a helper to her husband like God is a helper to Israel. Remember how we looked at what that means last week. Go and have a listen to last week's message if you missed that. A help in governing the world. He then speaks to Adam. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat fruit food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And here over Adam, we have the most intense of the consequences pronounced. And, and before anyone of the women say, hang on a minute, you haven't given birth to any children, We'll let you know what the most severe consequence is. We see here that it's because of Adam's sin that death comes into the world. And humanity is broken because of Adam's sin. Just as God had warned, creation is cursed and broken. And Adam's purpose to rule over the land that it might flourish becomes a painful task. See, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Because if he were to live forever in this state, he would have to live forever as a broken being broken and sinful and unredeemed. And we have as well in this verse, and we'll come back to this in a moment, the first recorded death in the Bible as God sacrifices an animal that there might be skin to clothe them, which becomes again a first reference to Jesus and him clothing us. We'll come back to that in a moment. 
Verse 23, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim. And just to say, the cherubim we discover through the rest of the Old Testament, these are some of the most powerful and awe-inspiring terrible, terrifying in the sense, in the best sense of the word, angelic beings. Not the cherubs that you see perhaps in, in modern culture today. These were fearsome angelic beings to, clo- uh, to, to protect now Eden. And so he places cherubim, that's the plural, and f- a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so over the course of the chapter, Eden goes from being a place guarded by Adam to a place guarded from Adam because of Adam and Eve's sin. What are the important things that we need to take out of this passage? Well, the first is the presence of evil is revealed that predates the fall of humanity. Here's an important question, obviously, as you're reading this passage is, who or what is the snake in the garden? In Genesis chapter 3. And to answer that question, we have to apply a very important principle of interpreting the Bible. And that is that we interpret Scripture within its immediate context and with the insight of the rest of the Bible. So where another portion of the Bible interprets our passage for us, we now know how to understand that biblical passage. And so we need to go to the rest of the scripture to sometimes understand the difficult passages that we're looking at. And so when we read Genesis chapter 3 with an awareness of of passages, for example, like John chapter 8, where Jesus says this uh, to those who are against him, who are opposing him. He says, you belong to your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father or the originator of the lie, the originator of deception. Deception began with someone. It began with the devil and it impacted humanity in the Garden of Eden for the first time. Revelations 12, another passage, and that great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent, and the Hebrew word in Genesis chapter 3 is, is the word for serpent, okay? That ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was hurled to earth and his angels or the demons with him. Romans chapter 16, which we'll come to again in a moment. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. It's Romans uh, chapter 16, verse 20. It's a reference to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which speaks about the offspring of Eve ultimately crushing the head of the snake. Um, and, And so we look at these passages and others like it, and we come to an understanding that there was something much more sinister than a physical snake in the Garden of Eden. There was a spiritual presence that was seeking maliciously to entice and to deceive humanity, to rebel against God just as he himself 
had rebelled against God. Kenneth Matthews, in his commentary uh, on, this, on this section, says this. He says that the command of God is now refashioned, is altered, is distorted to suit the purposes of the serpent. And if you have a look at, um, if you have a look at God's command to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 and the serpent's rephrasing it of, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, you see that what God is revealed to be like in Genesis chapter 2 is giving and generous, the abundant provider of freedom and liberty that he gives lavishly to his creation. And the serpent now reframes the very nature of God as being stingy, holding back humanity from its true potential. So that the consequences are seen to be a lie and the limitations are seen to be unfair. And that is the work of Satan in the world today as it relates to the truth of God. The enemy is seeking to deceive the world into thinking that the consequences are a lie and that the limitations are unfair. And you can see it everywhere in our culture today. And that's why in Revelations chapter 12, it can speak of the devil as being the deceiver of the whole world. We've all been impacted by this. We look at the commands of God, and how many of you have thought, that doesn't seem fair? That seems a bit harsh. That, that seems like that's limiting on people. That's not God being generous and, and liberal and showing freedom. That's God being stingy. We're not the first to think that. There was someone else who was seeking to make humanity think in that very same way. And we need to be careful who we're sinking with in our thinking and our thought processes. Okay, so we get an introduction to evil in Genesis chapter 3. We also get our first introduction to the idea of sin and its consequence. We see the woman saw and it was pleasing to her eye and it looked desirable for gaining wisdom. You know, looked like that donut. Who's still thinking about the donuts? <laughs> Okay, from earlier, they do look pleasing to the eye and very desirable. Maybe we should have donuts while we're having the sermon time. Would that help? Okay, all right. And yet we see, despite the specific command not to eat, the desire for this created thing becomes the guiding motivation in Adam and Eve's life. And they go against what God has said. And we get this introduction to what sin is, which gets fleshed out through the whole of the Bible, but we have its origins here. Wayne Grudem, in his very helpful systematic theology, defines sin like this. He says, sin is any failure to conform to God's moral law in act, attitude, or nature. And the reason this definition is so helpful is because it relates sin and the definition of sin to the nature of God himself. There are many people who are trying to work out what sin is based on what humanity sees as being right and what humanity sees as being wrong. So, you know, I'm not that sinful because I'm comparing myself to them. 
and, and, I, and I'm, or they very sinful in comparison to me. <laughs> you know, how many of us have done that? And we're guilty of the, the log and the speck in the eye. But no, the, the definition of sin that we gain from the Bible is that anything, anything that doesn't conform to God's standard of holiness, of his moral nature, whether that's what we do or what we think or what we feel is actually considered by God as being sin. Think of Jesus when he says, it's not just the act of adultery that it is sin, but even lust to do it is seen by Jesus as being sin. Now, there's a difference between temptation. Temptation for us should be fleeting, and we recognize that it's wrong, and we choose not to do it, and we choose not to entertain it. But the minute that desire becomes a cherished desire, and we're now dwelling on that desire, that inward desire has now actually become sin within us. And that could be an inward feeling of bitterness, of resentment, of unforgiveness, of jealousy, of malice, of hatred. And when we desire what God says is morally wrong, we prove in our hearts that we are sinful. Anyone done that today <laughs> already or this week? Okay. Because our affections are now at odds with God's character. And what we also see, and this really challenged me too, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the reason that Adam and Eve hide from God is not even the right reason for them to be hiding from him. We see, why was it? They were afraid because they were naked. There was actually nothing wrong with them being naked together. God made them naked. They were man and wife. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, there was no shame. Now, I'm not saying that if we were sinless, we could all come like that to church, okay? Don't understand me incorrectly, but with your husband or with your wife, when you are together alone, there is no shame in that. What was wrong was that they had disobeyed God's instruction, and yet like Adam and Eve, when we sin, we tend to grieve the consequences of our sin more than the fact that we've offended God, and that is why we are really upset. And that's why Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you're taking notes, this is perhaps worth having a look at. He speaks about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is when we recognize that our sin has actually been against God. And that, he says, leads us to repentance. And repentance is beautiful because, it, like the illustration we saw, it reconnects us with God. And we find freedom through repentance. But worldly sorrow grieves our predicament, but doesn't acknowledge our offense against God. And that usually leads to anger against God, which Paul says goes on to lead to death. And so even the way that we experience pain and sadness over our sin, we see is broken in this moment when they sin and disobey God for the first time. And the third thing, we see that the consequences of Adam's and, and Eve's sin reveals its seriousness. Okay, so I'm not sure who, who you would think is in a better position to determine the severity of a crime and its right punishment. The criminal or the judge. 
Okay, so if a murderer is in court and they say to the judge, well, you know, I just don't think my life sentence is fair because I don't think it's that bad to have killed the number of people that I've murdered. I don't think it's that bad. I think that I've been treated too harshly. Well, we would probably hope that the judge would not be swayed by the murderer's opinion and that he would still uh, or she would still dish out a sentence that was fitting for the crime so that both the sentence so that the sentence could both reveal to the criminal and to the community the severity of what has happened and the seriousness of the crime and we see that in the bible the severity of god's judgments are meant to be an indication to us that the perfect judge is actually giving the rightly weighted punishment to any given issue so that we can know we can know how serious sin actually is the sin of adam and eve do not just impact them they actually impact all of creation and all those that would follow so adam and eve are made in the image of god and when they are created they are seen to be perfect there is no sin in them able to live forever but now that they are sinful they go on to create children who create children who create children who create us who are broken in their image it's a bit like if you take a stamp and then and you break it every time you stamp it out you have something that's broken or another illustration i've shared any of you made pasta before you know watch Jamie Oliver on TV and sort of just try to, you know, before I found out that I wasn't al allowed to eat wheat, uh, I used to love making my own pasta. And if you, if you have a pasta roller that has a ding in it, has a dent, then everything that you roll through it comes out distorted. doesn't matter how good the dough is that goes in, it rolls through and it comes out broken. And humanity has come out broken because of that first original sin we bear the image of god which is glorious but we also bear the image of our first broken parents it's why paul can can say both in ephesians 2 that we are by nature objects of god's wrath we are in our very nature sinful and yet at the same time he can also say in romans 5 we are all guilty because we've all sinned we're by nature sinful and we're all guilty because we've all sinned we can't blame god uh, for the punishment that we deserve and then lastly we see in this chapter there is the foreshadowing of hope this passage doesn't leave us without hope romans 5 but the gift is not like the trespass for if the many died by the trespass of the one man adam how much more did god's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man jesus christ overflow to the many in genesis chapter 3 as i mentioned there is an animal that dies in order for clothes to be made for adam and eve it's the first death in the bible that is recorded and it serves as an illustration for us of the lamb that would ultimately be slain Jesus himself the perfect lamb 
so that we could be clothed not with skin to cover nakedness, but with the very blood of Christ that our sins could be washed clean. But forgiveness was not enough. Jesus goes on to conquer death so that in his life we are able to be clothed, not just forgiven, but made whole and put back together and able to reconnect with God, that we have a hope that transcends this broken world. So that as we think of our loved ones and the people in this church that we've lost over the course of this year and yet have loved God, we aren't without hope because we believe that they have a hope that goes beyond the grave and that we will be with them if we have committed our lives to the Lord in like way. And so Genesis chapter 3 becomes the foundational story of the whole gospel message. And it's a story that we can all respond to. Adam and Eve received the clothes from God. They didn't chuck them away. (laughs) They received them. And we have an opportunity. Just as Paul goes on in Romans chapter 10 to say, how will we respond to the gospel? He says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth you profess and are saved. And it's interesting, there is an inward and outward thing that happens. Just as with Eve, there was an inward and an outward thing that happened. There was an inward desire. Oh, that donut looks amazing. And I want to be wise. And then there's a reaching out and eating. There's an in and there's an out. And salvation is the same. There is an inward belief and desire, but not for the fruit, for God himself, to say, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sin. I believe he rose again, and I actually want that, and I need that, because I recognize that I'm a broken person living in a broken world, but it goes beyond that. There's actually an action that's required as well, to profess with your mouth that I believe that he was raised from the dead. And so as we close, I want to give anyone who's perhaps here that's never done that, and maybe you've been in the church for ages and you've sort of believed it, but, but I know what it's like to sort of believe it, but you've never nailed your colors to the mast. You haven't sort of stepped over the line and said, you know what, I profess it. I'm actually going to define myself as a Christian now. I I, I remember the time where I I used to, uh, you know, uh, at different times in my life, I've run. And then there was a moment where I said, you know what, I don't just like to run. I see myself as a runner. And, and then I got injured, and I couldn't do that anymore. And then it was, I started to cycle. And then it was like, you know what? I, don't just, I see myself as a cyclist. I am a cyclist. And then I got injured from that as well. I've struggled a bit. And now golf, I'm hoping, I'm hoping my body can last. But you know, I used to play golf. Now I sort of see myself as a golfer. You, know, you, you go through those times. And, and so if Christianity is something you've been doing, but it's not something that you've been being, then maybe today's the day you make that decision. I'm not just coming to church. I'm actually, I'm actually going to declare myself to be a Christian. I believe in Jesus, and I, I need his forgiveness, and I'm willing to tell people that that's who I am. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online, wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org.uk.